So are you into any new music lately? Avid Brothers. They have a new one. True Sadness. You ever listen to Avid Brothers? No, I was kind of off that genre after Mumford ruined my, their third album. Yeah, Mumford was kind of a blip, wasn't it? They were so big and then they just kind of disappeared. It was the thing where they didn't just change their sound. They, We talked about this before, but they also like cursed the previous success they had through things like the banjo. And it was like, you know, screw the banjo. That thing stinks. And everyone's like, that's one of the things we loved about you is this kind of bluegrassy rock melding. Just, I think people don't like to see a band curse their own success. Right. Like that bothered me even in high school about Nirvana. It's like the, oh, I'm depressed. Why? Oh, because I'm so successful. It's like, what? Like mm-hmm. people love your music because it's, it's good and it's interesting and it's new, but now you act like it's the worst thing in the world. But it is weird for a musician that they probably spent let's say a couple of months writing a song and then they record it and then they go out and play it for a year like they must really hate that song don't you think after oh, yeah. 18 oh, months yeah. so that's part of it is is and you don't want to be known for that album um there was a simpsons yeah. about this i think where they had some classic rock band up on stage at an amphitheater and they said we want to play it <laughs> from our new album and homer's out there going play free you know whatever their big hit was something yeah something i forget which band it was and they're like oh and then they had to go back to the same song they played for 40 years and that yeah. is kind of the typical response of i think that's certainly true of the one hit wonder band so if, if all you know is Freebird, yeah or if all you have is a couple of songs here and there maybe just one even the one big song that would totally be horrible because no one knows any of the lyrics to anything else, and you play the one song, and everyone cheers. And then they want to go home. Yeah. But, you know, you get some of these bands that they were great, and they have iconic multiple albums. Say, like, ACDC. You know, ACDC puts out a new album. No one's going, yeah, let's go. we got to get it, man. We'll listen to it. It's probably just okay. But if they play any of, like, the 50 songs from the early days, we love it. But I think you're right. I mean, I don't know if you've had this, where you have, like, the one sermon you give in, like, seven different churches. Or the the one like standalone lecture that you give over and over and over again. Occasionally it's like, oh, I need some new material. <laughs> you do yes, get that yes. sense of like, I don't want to do this again. Yeah. And I've met a few authors over the years who are at like a convention or a conference. And they're already on to like the second book after the one that they're at the conference to speak on. So uh-huh. it's been like seven years and they're like, oh, uh, this again. kind of. They don't say that. No one will ever say that. But that's part of the longevity, I think, of some authors is they never stop saying the same thing over and over again without losing their mind. <laughs> yeah, just saying it the same way. Yeah, I've, I have had that experience and people say that was so great. And I'll say, well, I, I had preached it three other times. So, yeah, right. <laughs> you know, it, it's it, there was an experience behind that. My least favorite experience is when I have to preach two back to back the same church. I had to do this last month. I was filling in for a buddy who was on sabbatical and I agreed to do four sequential weeks. And they have an earlier morning and then a later morning Sunday service. I always felt worse the second one because I felt really energetic the first time. Mm-hmm. You know, I felt really fresh. The second time, I can't get it out of my mind that everyone around me is like the, like the worship leader, the, the co-pastors. They're just hearing me. I, I can't tell the same joke twice or I, I can't, I can't make that. the same passionate point twice. And so I just feel like I'm like... Yeah, anyway, Jesus loves you. Bye. Okay. Like, I, I just feel a lot less uh, <laughs> energetic than I did the first time. It, it is funny how there's one or two people that can really 
kind of derail you and, and they don't even mean to, they're just sitting there, but you start sort of playing that mind game of thinking the organist is hearing this again. And then it just kind of, you deflate. This is why uh, comedians hate hecklers mm. is you can't relax and just be funny because the one person's been a jerk to you. Mm-hmm. In this case, the person's just sitting there, sweet little old lady at the piano. Right. Going, Stop looking at me. <laughs> <laughs> don't look at me. <laughs> you know, that old thing. This is purely spontaneous, I promise. Yeah. Yeah, I'm not, a, I don't take any notes into the pulpit. Like, I, I do extemporaneous preaching mostly. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. The main reason for me for that is uh, I lose my place, and then I start to get flustered the other way around. So even if I have things written down, like the, the outline, if I keep having to look down, and I start going, um, ooh, where am I? Where am I? In my head, and then I get lost, and I start to so, stutter. So you take an outline, you're saying? No, I don't. I take nothing. You take uh, nothing. Just, just the Bible text. So you've memorized an outline? You've kind of prepped and memorized an outline? or it's a Roughly. More? Roughly. Yeah. I, I know where I'm going. I think the teaching experience has changed this because teaching, as you know, is such a, a, a mixture of planned material and yet also you're Socratically, you are being a little more extemporaneous. You, mm-hmm. you know, for me, the worst type of lecture is just simply purely prepared like you're reading a book. The second worst is the guy who's just up there like, so what are we going to talk about today? I don't know. Let's talk about um, uh, freedom, uh, God's providence, like the kind of random, like no outline guy. Mm-hmm. But uh, I always find a good lecture is some mixture of planned and, and freestyle. So that's kind of how I preach. I don't recommend other people do it. It's just how I'm practiced. So no, in my case, I know where I'm going. I know my points and I know my illustrations. And I just, I kind of riff at that point. And I'm better on my feet than I am trying to read something. Yeah, I, I remember in seminary preaching class, the teacher said there's actually very few people that are effective with a manuscript. Some people are very good with a manuscript, but it's like yeah. 5%. Most yeah. people are not good with a the manuscript. They, they really, and it's interesting, the congregation, the audience, they, they pick up on it. There's an yeah. excitement to the extemporaneous that they are drawn into. And so I, I take an outline in. I, I also don't like a manuscript anymore. And I agree, it's partly teaching that when you're teaching 12 sessions a week, four classes yeah. times meeting three times, you're basically prepping 12 times. It is very extemporaneous and you get very um, used to that. But I have some goals, yeah. but I'm also willing to dispense them. And once your preaching gets like that, it's it's kind of exciting. You sort of realize you're losing people. And, and like we've said this before, it's time to just sit down. It's like, uh, give, yeah, me, just, give me a hymn there. Yeah. yeah. So getting that pulse of the congregation. Uh, it's interesting you say that about the manuscript, though, because so many of our classes in different seminaries that I've seen, they teach to the manuscript. Like preaching 101 was like you turn in a manuscript of a sermon. Right. I hate I hated that. But you do it. The idea is that you get used to the manuscript because you need something to grade, but then they're supposed to try to wean you off of it, but they don't really. Mm-hmm. And so I've seen so many bad habits form because it becomes all about the purity of the manuscript that you're using, almost like it's a, a, a systematic theology that you have to have every word in place exactly the way you need it to be. Maybe it was just my context or the places I've seen it, but you know, it's, it's a hard thing to teach something that you can only really gain good insight from from experience. Yeah, you're right. After a couple of years of teaching, I fun, I finally found out what I like doing during preaching, which is more extemporaneous. Yeah, then I actually felt like I could communicate. But 
I don't know how we got on this, but we were talking about music. Um, for, but but yeah. there is an anal- there's an analogy here. I mean, you know, how do you do the same style of thing or the same thematic thing over and over again and find a fresh application of it is, I think, something that's cross-genre. I think so, too. Yeah. So you're on the Averill Brothers. Um, yeah. what, what, what do you like about it? Is it the same style of, I mean, I, I heard some of the earlier stuff, but. It is. This one's a little rocky. It's got, I mean, rock and roll. It's got some, sounds like electric drum type stuff. So, uh, really it, it is a little genre. They've always been a little genre bending, but, uh, this yeah. one, especially it, it's got some really catchy tunes, but, um, they, I, I think they're amazing. So they updated their sound a little bit as well. I, it seems to me, and you know, some have said that they've, I, I, to me, and I don't, I don't know their catalog completely, but I think they used to be much more folky and they've slowly been a bit more uh, fusiony, but, but it works. And I think they've been fusiony for some time. I do play in that uh, bluegrass band with uh, some friends and we've tried yeah. to do some Avid Brothers songs. Their stuff is really hard. It does weird time oh, shifts yeah. and, and weird chords. Like it's, it's very hard to play surprisingly, even though it sounds natural and they do it and their harmonies are super, super tight. I yes. think they're the one. There's a guy that plays uh, upright bass with them in the band, and he has this weird neck strap, and he's like dancing around with the huge upright bass, you know, the one that's yeah. eight yeah, feet yeah. tall. And I don't know how he can possibly dance and jump and play it at the same time. I've never seen anybody do that. Yeah. Because usually it's got the stick, and they're kind of plastered down, sitting. The Mumford I mean, guy does it a bit. He kind of swings it around. Okay. Uh, yeah, and there's, there's some like, like, yeah, you're right, there's some strap that, but you no, know, I don't know how you hold it because you have to be holding it with the string hand. Mm-hmm. I don't know how you're holding it and at the same time at least getting close to the right note. And it must weigh I don't know twenty pounds. I don't know yeah. what. I mean, it is, it's a lot of empty space, but it's still a lot of wood there, and there's no fret, so he's got a feel. Yeah, some of these guys play so much; it's just complete. You know, there's the the strength of their hands and the 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 muscle memory is just off the charts. Yeah. Yeah, dexterity type things. I'm finding the maybe it's the older I get. You know, when I was 20, I thought strength based things were awesome. So like, you know, like a CrossFit games, those types mm-hmm. of things. If that if that had been around when I was 20, I'd have been like, whoa, he did so much. Now I find dexterity things like this to be more compelling because I, I I realize they're equally as hard. If that makes sense. Mm-hmm. There's this new controversy over whether or not e games, esports, like video games or whatever it might be are legitimately sports because it's usually just fat guys with good fingers, <laughs> you know, but the dexterity of what they're doing is actually in some ways as hard as a musician, as hard as, you know, some of these other, uh, as a violinist, they're, they're very, very good at that. But yeah, how you dance around with a bass while, while jumping, while not being out of tune or something really, or breaking the thing is crazy. Yeah, it's crazy. Uh, you think the Russians would try to have a doping scheme with the uh, video games? It is hilarious <laughs> you mentioned that. They actually, there is a doping controversy right now. It's Adderall. Right. Because the game is all about focus and the, the, the tournament will last, say, you know, eight hours or something. And no matter how, how much these guys are into it, you know, that amount of intensity is going to take a toll. So I think there was a European based team that won something. And there's a game, I think it's called Counter-Strike. It's, it's one of these first-person shooter games. Mm-hmm. And apparently it's just, it's just very real. So, you know, if you shoot someone in the head, they die instantly kind of a thing. You don't have power-up packs and magic. And this team won something in that. But later on, like a year later, the head of the team said something like, oh, yeah, we were all in Adderall. And uh, <laughs> so it was like this doping skin. <laughs> like, nice. Yeah. 
You're not going to do steroids for your fingers, but the attention span thing. So now they test. They, they have to pee into a cup. <laughs> oh, wow. <laughs> At an eSports game. When it's just guys, guys in video games. There's definitely dexterity there. I've, I watched a little bit of this, uh, doing a little research on this uh, video game, watching people and sports, and they're playing on keyboards and, and a mouse. Yeah, and so there's it. definitely a dexterity there because you're working, you know, and you're looking. Uh, I remember when the the PlayStation came out, and and I predate that. But when the and the PlayStation came out, I, I had a hard time. I never did master that weird joystick. It had two. It was horrible. Yeah. Yeah, it had two joysticks basically on it, and so yeah. I would try to play Call of Duty with somebody, and I end up always looking at the sky, and then they would just <laughs> yeah. get shot because <laughs> I'm like, I can't look at. I couldn't. I could never yeah. get the perspective right because you've got one joystick to move and one to, to control where you're looking. And I don't yeah. look at the ground or the sky and then I would die. And I'm like, I hate this. And I, quit. I never played again. Well, yeah, at, at the esports level, the computer-based is the only thing that matters. What they do is just insane. I mean, they have a, a you and I have a mouse pad that's probably like one foot tall by half a foot wide, you know, real small thing. Mm-hmm. They, they have a mouse pad that, that'll be like three feet wide by three feet tall. Hmm. And so they're swinging their arm around on it really fast to get these sort of accurate pinpoint things. Wow. And they've got the keyboard with multiple bindings with stuff that do things. There's a certain keyboard that each key is, you don't have a bundle of sensors for for a group of keys. Each key has its own sensor and it's lightning fast. So the response rate is faster. That's crazy. I still think when it comes down to it, musicians have the complexity of dexterity there is just unrivaled. Mm-hmm. So I actually tried to pick up a banjo at one point, maybe three years ago, because I thought, ah, that's how, I, I wonder, because I know how to play guitar, if I could learn the banjo. And the rolling of the right hand versus the left hand moving, I was just like, whoa, I, I need to be 18 again to really wow. like have n- time to get back into this. Because it's not just fast right hand, it's also like the pacing. So I just couldn't do it without a lot of practice, which I didn't have time to do. Mm-hmm. I just wanted to tinker around. Yeah, and and you can pick up a guitar or piano and tinker with it and get a couple songs and kind of enjoy it and just be a complete novice. Banjo, it's like, oh gosh, I'm I can do nothing <laughs> here at this point. That would be I bet I can only imagine. I mean, bluegrass and folk are interesting because there's not a drum, so you've got a beat, but mm-hmm. but the beat is conveyed either through a bass line, through an upright bass, or something. Or that banjo or just the strumming pattern. And so the banjo's yeah. got that dual, it's percussive and it's hitting chords and notes. And and so yeah, it's it's a really amazing instrument. Actually from Africa too, interestingly. Really? The Africans brought it over and then it got introduced into America and became, you know. I didn't know that. Yeah. It's an African origin. Take that. Just sitting there thinking, oh, that makes total sense. Yeah. They brought it over and then the immigrants, I guess the Scots and Others, you know, that sort of the background of bluegrass music got in. They're like, hey, what you playing there? Hey, that pretty wait, good. what's that? Yeah. Uh, that sounds twangy. <laughs> uh, maybe I could stomp my foot to that. <laughs> <laughs> I could sing a song about Annabelle. <laughs> That's right. Oh. <laughs> she keeps, she still walks the hills. That's interesting how, I mean, I, I, what, what gave me pause there for a second was how you put different cultures side by side and the, the genres will blend. The style of music will blend. Like we think of, we we did a little bit on this before the rock rap thing, that, that we feel like that's so earth shatteringly new in the late '80s, early '90s for two genres to be side by side and kind of fuse together. But music's always done that. You either do that through instruments crossing over, or you do it through certain beats, certain rhythms, or whether it's just just a complete 
take something that seems foreign to this thing and put them together on purpose and something new comes out of it. Sure. I mean, classical music, they're exploring different instruments, exploring the cello at one point is a new type of instrument. Yeah. It was uh, the new, it was like the, 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 the wah-wah pedal for the guitar. Yeah. Like, yeah. What's a cello? Ooh. And so probably much of our great music is kind of a fusion of something old and something new. Of course, rock and roll has that roots and blues music that's coming from the Mississippi Delta and the the uh, the African Americans migrating north and traveling up there with that music, and then it get kind of fuses into rock and Motown and some of these other sounds. Yeah, so you yeah. know, there's a real excitement there. Of course, Elvis Presley is borrowing from that with his music. Mm-hmm. Uh, we got Eminem, and of course, we got Hamilton. Hamilton. That's right. There's a segue. We need a segue bell. Ding ding ding. You were into this. I was not. I I, I got the album and listened to it, and and, and it completely was not what I expected it to be. <laughs> Because I had read the book about Hamilton. Chernal. Chernal? Chernov. Chernobyl? Chernov. Cherry. Buy the book. You know. There's a book about somebody, and that's something. If you go to Amazon and put Hamilton Chur, you'll find it. <laughs> not Chur. Not a chair, but a Chur. No, I'd read the book like years ago because it's an old book. A student was in my office, and her daughter had been in New York and had seen it. And mentioned that it's because they saw the book on my shelf. And I just remember going, oh, yeah, I've heard about this play. It's it's sort of famous. It's sort of famous puts it mildly. You were saying, how many Tonys is I it? I think it's won? the second highest number of Tonys. It won 11 or something? It's ever, right? Ever. I think the producers was first, and Book of Mormon might be third. Somewhere around there. We have Hitler, which is for the producers. You have <laughs> <laughs> Hamilton and the Book of Mormon. Or the Book that's, of Mormon. That's the three top What's wrong with Tony. this country? Yeah, I had read a lot about it in New York Times because it's been such a, a runaway hit. Tickets are still sold out for the next year unless you go to kind of scalper. And it's, until it's they the get on cats. the road. So, yeah, you, you can't get tickets to it. And tickets are going for $900 a seat if you go to the wow. the, the resale guys. Uh, so I'd read a lot about it and was interested. And then it was some friends of the family and their kids who are kind of middle school age. They were they had been listening to it. They'd been on a road trip and they're into acting and musicals. And I thought, I never realized you could just get the album. Of course, there's oh, a, yeah. there's a yeah. recording of it. And I thought, well, idiot. So then I got to listening to it. And then I would wake up in the mornings singing it and, you know, yeah. sort of driving. And all of a sudden you get these songs in your head and and now it's happened to Jenny. She says, kind of, curse you. You've Now I hear these songs <laughs> in my head. I didn't want this life. Well, and, and is this a musical where everything that, like, there are no words? It's just the entire thing is sung, like Lim is? Or do you know? They kind of talk. It's sort of that, in opera, that recitative where they're sort yeah, of okay. talking quickly. I wouldn't call it yeah. opera exactly, but it's got that bit where they are kind of, they don't talk, but they're not exactly singing. But it's not like the high school play where you you, do, you deliver a couple of bad lines and then you break into song. No, it's yeah, yeah, it's not that. I don't think they ever just. They might be occasional, but they're certainly very small. Most of it's communicated through kind of a, a a chant or a rap or a song. But what's so interesting and exciting about it is portraying the debate between Hamilton and Jefferson with Wash the cabinet debate as a rap battle. Yeah. You know, yeah. And, and it's a so throwdown. Yeah. And they, it's a throwdown. And, and it, w- it would have been back then. It would have been an exciting argument of ideas. 
and to then recast it as this sort of rap thing to to bring in these influences from I hear Run DMC, I hear Eminem, I hear various stuff going on besides just Broadway musicals. Bits of it's lyrical, uh, very beautiful and haunting, and bits of it are kind of uh, hip hop thuggish. And it it takes a history and makes it alive. We should probably stress that to our audience if they haven't picked up. The story of Hamilton is told, and the music is a blending of very contemporary genres, particularly hip-hop and, and rap. And so, yeah, <laughs> you, you told me to, to check the album out because it was so enthralling that it would actually hook you. And I, I downloaded it and started playing, and then it's just like, oh, this is different. <laughs> like, I expected, <laughs> I mean, everything. Be, I, th- I think the first play I ever saw was in London. I saw Les Mis. Mm-hmm. And it's great, of course. It's wonderful. And I really like the themes of redemption and shame and and the songs are great. And so I think what I, my guess is whatever your first exposure is to theater, you kind of always measure things up to that. Uh-huh. And so to see something that was so genre busting, I went, whoa, OK. So, I, I, yeah, but totally like it works. It totally works. This idea that you can't understand the founding fathers in their own genre in some ways. You have to think about what would it be like in our world? Mm-hmm cultural leaders debating how the world is going to work in their country. It would be like different cultures of, of hip-hop music, fighting it out, um, debating. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, there's also this element, it, it works on so many levels, because there's also an element of this is important then, and it, the, the play is actually very historically accurate. It follows the, the very important biography of Alexander Hamilton, but it also says, you know what, people aren't going to get this. They're not going to get powdered wigs and wooden teeth and whatever the, whatever the kind of false teeth they would wear. And they're not going to understand this, but they need to know how important this is for the shaping of the American context. Yeah, and so they put it in this different context. But like you said, it's historically accurate because what's interesting is you have movies and plays that try to get the setting right, but then they'll play with the story because it makes a yeah. better story. Here we have something that's performed in some ways not historically accurate because you've got black people, you've got other people, uh, you got a Puerto Rican portraying the founding fathers who were white, and yet they get the facts right. But then they have the hip hop bit. So that's what's so interesting and amazing is it's kind of accurate, but not. Um, So you see, I'm saying like the music is all wrong, but but the actual facts are right versus something else that it's like, well, this is a movie about LBJ, but we changed these bits to make it a little more exciting. You're right. It's the Oliver Stone problem. Yes, yes. So Oliver Stone makes a movie about Alexander the Great or Vietnam. He wants the genre to feel like it's accurate. So he wants to almost convince you that this is what happened. But he will absolutely change the story to whatever he thinks is more important, conspiratorial type stuff. But you're right. I hadn't even thought of it that way. Yeah. They flip it. They, want the, they, they don't want to change the story, the, the history of it. For them, that's not the point. That's unassailable. But by changing the genre or changing the, the setting. So you're right, people of color wearing founding fathers, you know, powdered wigs and, and mm-hmm. you know, stockings. Yeah, that's right. It's historically accurate, but it, it's jarring and compelling because it's not the people that you'd expect to be debating these things, right? And taking they don't, over the debate. And they didn't debate it as a, as a rap battle. There was no rap, you're right, but we're going to do this. So, and, and, you know, plays have done this before. They've taken Shakespeare and set it in a, like a Nazi setting where they do the play they do Macbeth but they're dressed up like Nazi guards or something yeah so you've seen that kind of transmutation in plays where we're, we're going to take the play and, and change so in a way there is a precedent for it uh, but 
I don't know quite of a precedent of take trying to redo a history. Yeah. And, you know, quite, I, I'm sure there are, there are some, but you know, to do it this differently and yet accurately as I understand it now, maybe he did take some, yeah, I, sure. I, I really haven't gone and, and read deeply on it, but I haven't actually heard many complaints from the historian side. I, I looked a little bit, there might be some, you know, really deep uh, founding father, early American historian guy or gal who just says, oh, well, there's a couple things here that are overplayed. But I haven't heard like overwhelming, like they got this wrong. Right. Or they changed. Like the Steve Jobs movie was a great movie if you saw that. But there was just so much that was wrong in it. Like just yeah, totally exactly. inaccurate. You know, where his daughter and his, you know, the situation, you know, the yeah. one I'm talking about it. The, oh, yeah, uh, yeah. Which and is, Facebook, uh, the social network was the same way. Yeah. You know, that. You're right. It bothers me more to, to completely change the facts to make it more compelling as a story. So every Easter, it's the same way. The, the, some new Jesus biopic depiction comes out, you know, mm -hmm. usually, History Channel. And usually it's the, the way it goes down is that they're doing as, as much as they can to have the setting look like first century Israel. But not that we exactly know what that was, but of, we guess. Of course. <laughs> but, but yeah, it, it's usually, you know, hey, look, there's a camel. Um, <laughs> That kind of thing. I'll do some dirt. Dirt dirt works. Yeah. They had dirt. Dirt. I don't think they had any grass anywhere. You know. Because <laughs> look at this JPEG. We can show you. I will say, growing up, that every depiction of Jesus in first century Israel made it look like they were just slapping the Sahara, like right in the <laughs> middle of it every time. Like, how are they drinking any water? Oh, really? But but you, know, you always have this setting, and of course, but then it's well, what do we leave out? You know, what's the most important thing? And I remember I think it was when I was in high school or college. One one of them came out, and it was they wanted to have a happy Jesus. So it was they they chose all the stories of him laughing, uh, the wedding at Cana, time with friends, and he would dance. At the, he, they showed him dancing at the wedding, which made no sense because we're not sure what kind of dancing they did at weddings. It's it's so twentieth right. century, but it was this like okay, what do we leave out? What do we add in to the actual story from the evidence we have, and. To keep this riff going, you know, what would it have been like to try to tell that story as with different faces, different genres, uh, you know, take the Christ story, take the gospel story, the account, but put it in a different time, a different culture, if that makes sense. That's a, a different riff, a different move. Yeah. And Godspell kind of does that. It does, does it, it, especially the movie has them kind of like vaudeville musicians and they come into New uh -oh. York and, and, and set it so... John baptizes Jesus in Central Park. And so it's just such a great, I think it was 1973, such a great, so maybe there, there's a precedent of, of taking it. Well, but it's not really accurate. I, I mean, Godspell has the bits in there, but the music and everything, it, it's, it's, it's pretty loose. It, it's not trying to be accurate. It's more of trying to get the spirit of it, but really put it in, and, you know, Jesus is, a, is, is wearing a Superman shirt with these crazy pants and suspenders and he's in makeup, you know, and it, but it is very yeah. compelling too, because at least, you know, they're, they're trying something instead of, like you said, trying to, they're not trying to be accurate. Yeah. They're much more up. They're not deceptive. Historically, there've been a couple like this. There was, um, during the evangelism of the Gothic Viking peoples, there was a, a, a Gothic Bible that was drawn up to try to, it, it was, it, you know, I had a professor of uh, Hebrew that used to say all translation is accommodation. It, unless you get, put them somehow into a Hebrew or a Greek mind, you're going to have to translate some stuff. Mm -hmm. There are things that are idioms in Hebrew that are not idiomatic anywhere else. Some things cross over, he said, but, but sometimes, you know, 
you have to figure out a way of putting it concretely if it should be concrete in our mind versus abstractly, all this kind of stuff. So he said that's why there's a billion translations is you're always working at this skill. But I thought it was really compelling to say it that way. Mm-hmm. I found out in history there's this one like Gothic Bible where they're trying to convey who Jesus and the disciples were to Viking like overlords. And so, you know, it's like it's just the hilarious thing where it's like Jesus is, you know, blowing the horn like a Viking lord. And they, they, it, it's so accommodating. It, it ends up being a little bit silly or even a lot silly. You know, it's, it's Jesus basically kicks the crap out of Satan versus, you know, suffering and dying on the cross. Much more metal. But yeah, very metal, very, you know, Thorish. Um, uh, you know, because Avengers it, 3. It, <laughs> we should get a hold of Joss Whedon immediately. Joss. I think he is a atheist, but he's sympathetic to religion in some ways. Or he's he's a bit of a, or maybe he's agnostic. He's not a Dawkins figure, but but I think he would like this. I think we got a good story. Loki yeah, could I th- be I think so. Judas. Yeah. He still gave one of the best lines ever about <laughs> the juxtaposition. It's in the first Avengers. I love that movie, by the way. I love the oh, first Avengers. Oh, it's amazing. Yeah. It's so great. And it's the Iron Man and Thor. Thor grabs Loki and jumps off the Quinjet. Iron Man then jumps out and flies after him. And then, like, yeah, Captain America is very slowly strapping on this, like, parachute because <laughs> he can't fly. And Black Widow says something like, you might want to sit this one out. They're, they're basically gods. <laughs> and very deadpan, Captain America says, there's only one god, ma'am, and I'm pretty sure he doesn't dress like that. <laughs> and then he just jumps <laughs> off jumps, the jet. Yeah. <laughs> and it's just, it's so classic. It's, per- it's perfect. I cried laughing about that for a while. What religion do you think Captain America is? Did we talk about this? No. I'm having a memory moment. I'm thinking waspy Protestant. I mean, he's so... But which one? Maybe Lutheran? Lutheran, well... Doesn't strike me as Baptist. Doesn't wear a suit. I think kind of New England-y uh, uh, Methodist yeah. was always kind of my world. <laughs> like, you know, because the whole f- opening of his caricature in the first movie, in the first Captain America movie is, yeah, he's a poindexter, he's a small guy, but he always wants to improve... Yeah, uh, could he, be. he works hard. He's committed. He's not a pacifist by any or quietist by any means. Yeah, could be. I don't see him as Catholic. He's not a Calvinist. Definitely. Not a Cal. You don't think he's Calvinist? Yeah. I don't know. Of, I don't know many Calvinists with muscles. Um, <laughs> I'm just kidding. That's just. That's just kidding. Uh, oh, you're gonna you know, get the email about that one and with photos. Yeah, I'm gonna be called into somebody's <laughs> office at some point. <laughs> what are you saying? We can't be Captain America. No, sir. I didn't say that. No, I'm just kidding. And 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 those biceps are amazing. Yeah, they are pretty amazing. Yeah, Avengers. I love the, the other bit I love in Avengers is at, towards the end when Loki, I mean, there's lots of great moments, but Loki's got his staff that he's been, you know, controlling people with and he taps yeah. Iron Man and they both sort of look. <laughs> he taps <laughs> it again. <laughs> they both sort of metal. Very yeah. bare moment. Yeah. And then Iron Man just dead pans performance issues. It's okay. It happens. <laughs> That's right. Uh, just... This is what made the second Avengers movie hard is some of the, the the moments like the Hulk smashing Loki like mid-rant about how awesome he is, like grabbing him and just yes, slamming yes. him by his feet. Only somebody who likes comics could like that, be, could, could have thought of that, like Joss, because you have to think, okay, Loki's really not going to die from this. Anybody else would. But he's going to be hurt for a while. And, and yet it's going to be hilarious, this idea that the Hulk just kind of throws him around like a ragdoll. Just mid rant, just just suddenly he, he, I was in the th- like live in the theater when that happened, and like the entire place, like, rarely is the entire theater laughing. 
but it, mm-hmm. it, it, it's landed very well. Yeah, Whedon is very funny. Do you ever see his uh, Dr. Horrible sing-along blog that was popular some years no. back? Uh, it was like a web series, but I think you can buy it on iTunes, but I think it was done as a web series, and it had Neil Patrick Harris in it. And some oh, other, good. yeah, and and it's really funny. It's it's it, it's kind of like the if you ever watched the Tick or read the Tick comic book, it's very much no. like that. It's kind of a spoof on comics. Oh wow! No, I have I haven't seen you this. seen this. So, uh, there you know, there's a real history there of comics spoofing comics. An old one was Megaton Man, that was really funny, <laughs> and he was kind of like a blithering idiot, but superhero. See, even the name, you hear, if you've read comics, you hear that name, Megaton. you know something. <laughs> Megaton, like, Megaton. 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 Exactly. Uh, the Tick is hilarious. It was a comic book, a TV series. It was animated, and then they made a live action one with Patrick Warburton, who was on, you see him on various stuff uh, and his voice, but he played the Tick, and he was a superhero, and he didn't know his name. You never saw him out of costume. He escaped from a mental asylum. Is he dressed up like a tick? Well, no, he's kind of like in a blue thing with two little antenna. Yeah, which is like, it's making fun of the Ant-Man thing. Even kind this, of, Even to yes. this day, I'm like, Ant-Man? That's not compelling. I don't <laughs> want to be an ant. <laughs> but it's funny because yeah. like Black Widow or Spider-Man, we're like, oh, yes. Somehow those animals. Those sound like, cool. Those insects. Like, oh, yeah, you could be that kind of insect. But an <laughs> ant or a tick. Ew. Yeah, that doesn't sound right. His companion is a guy that's supposed to be a moth with wings, but people think he's a butterfly and it makes him bad. <laughs> and in the TV show, uh, they only made about six episodes. They had a Hispanic guy playing a Batman figure, and his name was Batman Well <laughs> instead of Batman. <laughs> and he had a mustache. It was just really, really funny. That has to be a riff on the the, the two or three Spider-Mans. Um there's the white, there's the waspy Spider-Man, and there's Miles Morales, who's the, I believe he's mixed race, like yeah. African American, Puerto Rican, or something. And they're both still around. And they both get made fun of. <laughs> Marvel, by the way, I'm not sure if you've read any Marvel lately, but they've they've actually really, it's like the old Marvel from the '70s when they went really into like the cultural issues, and they've kind of done this. I don't know if you've noticed all the changes. Yeah, I've read some about it. Thor is a woman. Thor's a woman. Which what they've done there, everyone get mad about it. The, the real Thor is still around. The original Thor is still around. It's just something happened where he felt he, he like lost his sense of worthiness. So the hammer won't come to him anymore. Okay. So he's gone back to the axe he used to wield in Viking times. So it's kind of like the hammer is the thing that gives makes you Thor. Kind of like anyone can be in the Iron Man suit and technically be Iron Man. Mm-hmm. So it's it's I won't spoil it, but there's somebody, who, a woman uh, in Thor's life who's grabbed the hammer in a moment of worthiness and and is now Thor by definition, but not really Thor. Like, so they didn't just transgender him into, he's a six foot five guy. He didn't become a five foot four girl suddenly, you know, could be transgender Thor. It could be in the new comic, but, but they've done a lot of these things. So, um, Captain America is African American now, right? The guy carrying the shield, same thing. Carrying the shield guy is the guy by the name, but it's the guy who's the Falcon in the movies. Now in the comic books, he becomes the new Captain America. Wolverine is a, a, a female, mm-hmm. is a woman. But throughout all the series right now, there's, there's a significant language of people of color or women speaking actually as those kids, like speaking out in sort of frustration about some of the things in our culture right now, but from the vantage of the comic book, if that makes sense. So mm-hmm. in one of the Sam Wilson Captain America books, there's a meeting of 
African American, it's like a caucus almost of African American superheroes, and they meet to talk about some of their issues, some of how they're perceived, and huh, almost like um, a Black Lives Matter plotline. Yeah, a, a bit like that. Yeah, and so who's the Sam Jackson character? Dang it, Nick Fury. Fury. So Fury's there, all this stuff, and there are a couple other characters, but it's more the anyway. Marvel puts it right on there that that their race, like Captain America, is now black, so people are racist about him. Interesting. You see people holding signs sometimes that says, you're not my Captain America. And the character, Sam Wilson, just has to kind of endure this. So people have been mad about it because they feel like the old classic storylines are gone. But actually, it's made Marvel a little more modern, a little more contemporary, and a little more compelling. It's not Monster of the Week anymore. But they're actually trying to say, how can a superhero or any character live in a genre that's different from where it was before? which is a bit like Hamilton or any of these other genre-busting yeah. type things. Yeah, I mean, that's definitely an issue in comics. And I, I'm old enough to have seen these, you know, the comics have to recreate themselves. A bit like James Bond. You've got to recreate Bond yeah. for a new yeah. generation. And Star Trek is rebooting. So you, you've got your old fans, but the thing is they're going to die at some point. And yeah. to keep it going, you've got to appeal to the new fans, the new base. So you reboot Star Trek or you try to reboot even um, Terminator Genesis, try to do that, kind of give it a reboot. Yeah. Uh, and comics have done that before, too, where they, they killed off Superman. If you remember that death of Superman? And, and they oh, yeah. go like a year without Superman, and there's a replacements that are buying, and then Superman comes back. So I'm jaded enough to know that they'll eventually go back because no one ever really dies in comics. No. The reason why Sam Wilson was Captain America was somehow the, the serum in Captain America, the original Captain America, left his body. So he's now, he was an old man again. He was suddenly like 80. Weird. But he was a leader. So he was almost the guy back at home base calling the shots, but he couldn't really do anything himself. And there was a plot line that it got restored to him. So here he is, same old Captain America. And it's like, oh, there it is. He's already back. <laughs> like they, they couldn't leave him as an 80-year-old man forever. They're going to make people sort of lose interest. But, the you know, Steve Rogers decided to leave the shield with Sam. He's like, nope, I gave you the shield. You get to use it. I'll go some other way. I'll still be doing good, but I don't have to be called Captain America. But yeah, you're right. They, they always bring the person back. So they did this whole thing of killing off Wolverine, literally killing him off. I remember the covers. It was like, you know, when he has the three claws. It was like three months until he dies. And then it was like one claw, two claws, oh, two wow. months until he dies. And then it was like one claw and then like and then he dies. It was a big buildup. Like a month later, there he's 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 not really dead. He just went into the. I'm not dead yet. I'm just mostly dead. Yeah, now he's old. Same thing with they did the same thing. He he's like he's like 75. He went to some future time and lived for like a hundred years, and now he's like way older. He's got gray hair, but the mantle had passed to a female Wolverine. Mm -hmm. So it's like they don't ever get rid of their characters. They're not that dumb. But yeah. What they do is they just add complexity. They tried. I mean, there's this, this inherent problem that you read a superhero comic and it's great. But then you just want to read the same stories over and over and over. So they've got to find yeah. ways to make them interesting and different and draw new people in without a huge legacy of uh, all this mythos in the back. They've got to draw new people in, but they can't really change it completely without, you know, you can't have Superman without Superman at the end of the day. And you can't have no. Batman without the Joker. So they can't really kill the Joker or Batman. And some comics have explored that, that it's almost like Batman and Joker. There's a Neil Gaiman story. They're like punching the clock. It's like they're they're in a TV yeah. show because they're kind of fated to always play these characters. Yep. And you see him walking off set and the Joker's asking Batman about his daughter because they're almost like yeah. they're characters in a play. Uh, you know, what's that famous play? 
six characters six characters in search of a play pirandello or yeah. something like yeah, where yeah, it's, yeah. it's almost a meta story it's a story about a story and comics are always trapped in this kind of you know they want to change but they can't so it's real interesting well in the 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 dark knight movie actually makes fun of that because at least very subtly so in every movie and every reboot with the joker there's always the origin story thing it's like did he fall into a vat of chemicals or is he just crazy in it's makeup and, you, you know, you just don't, there's like three different origin stories. And the the guys who wrote the movie and, you know, the, uh, the Dark Knight and everything, that whole genre, they just said, you know what, let's just have him just show up. Everyone knows it's the Joker. You don't mm -hmm. have to actually explain it. And they actually make fun of it because repeatedly he starts to tell his origin story and it's different yeah. every time. Actually, yeah, that is very cool. He's almost a yeah. cipher and, and you find in the Joker whatever, whatever. Like, yeah. When you solve for X, you find yourself. Because he's this mirror to us, yeah. That, I I love that bit in that movie. It was very smart that he keeps. Yeah. You know, how how did I get these scars? Let me tell you, I got these scars, but it's never the how same. How did story. I get these scars? Yeah, how he does that voice and yeah, yeah. and then perfect. and then his clothes. Uh, there's no label. He has no ID. His fingerprint. Like yeah. he really is kind of just an empty. They don't know who he is. That's yeah, right. That's a great movie. It's great stuff. Well, you know, it does raise the question though. All of this, whether it's a play, whether it's a band changing its sound, whether it's looking at comic books and things. A question I know you get all the time. I get it all the time. How do you read a book? How do you, how do you exegete something? How do you interpret something? I think we're kind of dancing around some of that now, not to drive it too far to theology after talking about the Joker. <laughs> He's trying to get us back on track, folks. No, <laughs> I'm not. So the Joker, no. Um, <laughs> tell me about Aquaman. No, uh, let's not do that. We'll lose our audience. Aquaman doesn't get to read because he's in water. Oh, no, wait, their right. city is covered, so he's probably all right. I don't know, though. Books don't travel well underwater. <laughs> I mean, this is why we went, wanted to go down this question, is how do we read a book? How do you execute something? If you see things smashed together or changing, or if you see genres that don't quite fit, how do you execute something? How do you read a book? So in your world, if you're handing someone one of your favorite bits of literature, a book, let's say, not a short story, but a book, what instructions do you give the person for beginning to read that and understand it and actually appreciate it without simply just looking up the answers that they're supposed to regurgitate back? Yeah, it's such a great question. And, and, and it's a, the answer, I think, is a tough one. Every book is a response to something, in a sense. Like it's responding mm. to another idea or its culture or its... You know, so in a weird way, you have to almost understand... It's Genesis. That's that a good way sense. of putting it. So, yeah. The why why is this here? Yeah. Yeah. So you read Bart and you're like, oh, well, this is interesting. And I mean it's hard and I don't really understand what he's talking about, but why is this such a big deal? And you then you have to understand the whole liberal Protestant tradition to understand why that thing went off, you know, like a bomb in yeah. terms of church and theology in the twentieth century. So you have that's, to that's a good way you know, to put it, yeah. Yeah, the question behind the question. Or the question yeah. behind the thing. But, but the thing is, you know, if I bore you to death with 15 weeks of why Bart's important, then by the time you get to it, you're going to like, well, I don't really want to read it now. <laughs> so, yeah. so that's part of it is how do you, how do you kind of give them a soft serve? How do you lob the ball to them so that they can understand the book and, and hit the ball? And, and uh, you know, that's tricky. The mechanics of reading a book, I was taught long ago, I make lots of notes in the first few pages, like, you know, yeah. the blank pages, I'll write quotes or points and write the page number. So I've kind of creating my own index. I find that helpful. I think you're putting some words to like my instincts, which is to say, you know, because I'm usually doing a lot of history stuff with folks or theology. 
but still with a history lens behind it. Yeah, I, I tend to say, like, look, you have to understand that, that, that what you were to say and the question behind the question. So, you know, you get Augustine's Confessions, and that, that should be on everyone's bucket list. It should be, you know, it's one of the top 50 books you should probably read before you kick the bucket. Well, you don't just simply open it and read it and go, oh, that was neat. Okay, cool. Like, you, you stop and say, okay, who was Augustine when he was writing it? Well, he was actually in his 50s, and he was already a bishop. And here he is writing his life story, but he also doesn't give us all the information. So he had a common-law wife or concubine for 20 years. He, he never mentions her name in the book, mm -hmm. <laughs> that kind of thing. But yet here's also a spiritual autobiography where a guy's telling a large number of his faults as a bishop and as a leader in all of Christianity in the West. And how compelling is that, that a man would actually lead with his confessions of sin as his biography? Mm -hmm. And what does that say about Augustine? So it's the what's behind the thing. And I think that's that that's true of anything you're reading. So you're reading a comic book series, you're watching a movie, you go to see Hamilton, or you're reading a theology piece from history, recent history or all the way back to the early church. If you just crack the book and read it, you're probably going to not finish it, I think. That was me, at least in college and seminary. I would grab a book that I'd heard about that I thought I was supposed to read, but the idea of looking up some basic information about the book or the person never mm -hmm. had been taught to me. And so I would have no idea what, what was being said here. Or, or, the, or there's the Citizen Kane problem, as I call it, where you're seeing something revolutionary, you're reading something revolutionary, but it feels so normal now because the revolution's over. Yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? So again, Augustine's Confessions. Spiritual autobiographies are so normal. Well, you don't realize... The Confessions was the first one ever. Mm -hmm. People didn't write spiritual autobiography. In fact, I think it's the first autobiography ever. I don't think anyone had really written that. I used to say that as well. I realized there's a couple. So okay. like um, Julius Caesar's, he writes something like an autobiography. Boring. But, yeah. <laughs> but, but it really doesn't qualify as an autobiography. It's more just Roman army exploits that he happens to be the general huh. over. Okay. So, yeah, I, I think you're right. Autobiography, you know. It, Maybe it, yeah. the first influential autobiography. There but, you go. You know, sort of almost whole genre, yeah. Yeah, you don't, once you realize that. No Roman would start with, like, what he was like as a child and the faults that he had committed and the sins that he had and right. the, the long quest. It was more like prelude to being a superhero, um, <laughs> at least in their mind. That's how mine's. Uh, a warrior. That's how mine's shaping up. Oh, easily, yes. Yeah, I mean, that's what I'm doing. At the age of 40, I started my eSports world. <laughs> Suddenly, I took the gaming world by storm. No, so there's the Citizen Kane problem, which is you don't even know you're reading something that's revolutionary. Mm -hmm. You know, Boethius, uh, his Consolation of Philosophy, asking some hard questions about God over suffering. And you realize there really isn't, hasn't been a book like that in that specific of a way that's almost scholastic. It actually shapes scholasticism. But... You know what? When I was in seminary and in college, for sure, there wasn't simple go-to databases to look things up. Right. There wasn't a Wikipedia. There wasn't a Stanford book of uh, or Encyclopedia of Philosophy online. There, a lot of these databases did not exist. So I, th I think the, the modern student has a, a lot more advantages. They can look some of these basics up. But the problem is, is there's information overload, so you never know which information to trust sometimes. Or you just don't look it up and you just think, well, I'll just look up crib notes as to what I need to say to get an A on the test. 
But for somebody who's actually reading, it's, yeah, start with the question as to why this thing is so important. Yeah, the Bart thing. Why is Bart so important? Because in some ways, the things he's saying are very normal historically. This is sort of resurgence of things that had been said before. Yeah. But he's also the ultimate fencing partner for modern systematics. Why is he that important? What, what, what are they seeing in there that's, that's vital? Right. You have to understand that history, that we'd really lost a sense of liturgy, a sense of the Trinity. Bart's, his fingerprints are on so much of the recovery that happens in the 20th century. Uh, yeah, of, he almost uh, embodies it in, really, in the way. I, I, I tend to point out to students, occasionally you get somebody who just embodies the change that's happening. Mm -hmm. Luther, classically, he's a medieval monk who becomes a reformer. I mean, he embodies the change in a way. Or Augustine embodying the change from Roman world at the fall of the West half, Western half of the Roman world. Or uh, MLK, you know, the, the shift of pre-civil rights to post. He, he embodies that in a way. Yeah, but Bart is that way with the resurgence of orthodoxy in the 20th century. Yeah. And so, you know, it's tough because uh, Bart's hard to read and these things get assigned. And the truth is, I think that you have to read these things for a long time. And that's that's what a semester is misleading about because you have a class on, say, systematic theology, but really all you're doing is just scraping yeah. the top. It's kind of like that social dance class I had back in college that was fun. But like every <laughs> week we do a different dance. So like, yeah, we learned the opening steps to the polka. And we learned the opening steps to the, but we never really got good at any of them. You just kind of got a yeah. sense of, okay, there's these different things and they all use a beat and some have are in three step and some are in four step. And um, then it's Christmas time and the class is over. And, and so, tune in next week. We're going to have a video presentation of Kevin doing the polka. I, yeah. <laughs> to weird Al Yankovic, of course. That's right. <laughs> But you said information overload. I think that's what keeps us in a job, to be honest, because yeah. that's the, you know, there is no replacement for someone who has studied it for decades that you can ask questions to that can be a guide. Because right now, yeah, the inf information's all there. But I mean, some people can autodidact their ways through it, but most people need a guide, need someone they can ask questions, wrestle with. And that's why we're here. That's why you need to take questions. And a good guide, a good teacher, yeah. there's that question, because you can't do that with YouTube. I can watch all these videos, but I, I have this, this one bit I don't get, and I have a question. I guess I could post it to YouTube. But yeah. you know, I can't Maybe ask that person. Lynda.com is great, but I can't ask them questions. But when I'm in a classroom, the students can ask me. You know, and now all of a sudden I realize, oh, this is, this is what I've communicated poorly, or this is, this is yeah. the bit that yeah. you, you don't understand my reference to... The Simpsons, because you don't watch it anymore. So let me give you a different example that dates me. <laughs> it's still on. Just keep watching it. No. It's not on Netflix, so they don't know what it is. Well, good talk, man. Yeah, good times. And uh, Facebook, Twitter, like us. Good night, Denmark. We, we love you. <laughs>